but I think it's a trend that we're really seeing of marijuana legalization like truly becoming one of the main bipartisan issues in the United States. And if you're able to go from marijuana legalization popularity in Massachusetts to South Dakota in four years, I mean, we th- this issue has been sold to the people. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. In this week's episode, I speak to Rob Hoffman, who is the Movement Building Fellow for the Northeast, Midwest, and Pacific regions with Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP. As you may remember from our last interview with Julia Hilbert, SSDP is the, quote, largest global youth-led network dedicated to ending the war on drugs. This is the first of the episodes on the topic of cannabis legalization. With Rob, we're going to talk about cannabis policy more broadly and what constitutes well-thought-out legislation in his eyes. The conversation with Rob starts about how he got involved in drug policy activism in the first place. We then talk about the ballot measures from Election Day in November 2020 and the MORE Act that passed through the House of Representatives on Friday, December 4th. Rob and I then talked about some general cannabis policy priorities going into 2021. We also touch on the topic of co-ops and the role that they can play as well. If you're interested in getting involved in SSDP, you can reach out to Rob at robert at ssdp.org. I'm also going to include the link to both his email as well as the website and social media for SSDP in the show notes. And now here's the interview with Rob Hoffman. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, do you mind just mentioning your name and professional title? Yeah, so my name is Robert Hoffman. I am the U.S. Movement Building Fellow for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Great. And can you tell us a little more about what SSDP is? Yeah, so SSDP is an international network um, existing in about 30 countries with roughly uh, 150 to 200 chapters at this time that is dedicated to ending the war on drugs. Our chapters do a variety of different things. Obviously, in six continents, we have to do (laughs) a lot of different things, but, but... Uh, really focusing on policy change, uh, harm reduction, education, um, having open and honest conversations about substance use, et cetera, um, and really trying to build a community that way and really just trying to examine like drug use in our communities and how the war on drugs is absolutely failing, (laughs) I mean, all of our societies. Absolutely. And you mentioned you're the movement fellow specifically. What uh, What does that mean? Yeah, so I work with about a little over half of our chapters in the United States, out of our regions, I have five out of eight. It's kind of just flung everywhere from the West Coast, Northeast, Midwest, et cetera. So basically anything that isn't the South or Colorado, Utah, et cetera. Um, so I'm basically the one-stop shop for chapters to discuss how to recruit, how to put your chapter online, um, how to run any advocacy campaigns, or basically anything a chapter wants to do ranging from how to post on social media to how to connect with a certain community group, et cetera. I'm basically just helping them with anything they need for the chapter. Um, So that's where the movement building fellow part of the role really comes in. Um, I also run our social media with uh, my digital comms intern, Rory uh, from Minnesota. Uh, She is also a, a chapter leader of ours in Minneapolis. So I work with her to run our social media and make posts, make sure everything is going out in time. And my third main hat, I have a lot of hats here, (laughs) as we all do. It's kind of a a small staff. Uh, I run or help run our U.S. Policy Council. So 
things in regards to like the MORE Act, which we'll talk about for a bit, uh, working on safe banking, uh, trying to figure out our federal policy priorities for 2021, which we can actually get into later in the conversation, uh, helping both our lobbyist, Michael Zuski and our leadership team, as well as our different issue groups, uh, determine what they wanna do around drug decriminalization work, access to harm reduction works, et cetera. Um, so we can talk about that a little more in depth. It's, it's kind of just a lot of things of uh, this nonprofit that I'm doing, but I'm definitely appreciative of all of those things. Absolutely. And before we get into the, some of the more policy specifics, I just want to kind of follow up with a few more general questions about kind of how you got started in this journey. Uh, I know you're mentioning you're, you're the movement building fellow now. You're wearing a lot of hats there at the moment. Was your first experience with SSDP kind of getting formally involved as the movement building fellow, or were you already working with them either through your own chapter when you were in undergrad or, or grad, or how did that look? Yeah, so I got involved, I really got involved in a January of 2016 with the chapter at my college that was SUNY New Paltz in upstate New York, about an hour and a half from the city. Uh, so I started off there um, as a pretty active member and then going from vice president to president of that chapter. Uh, the, the main focus of that chapter at the time was really fighting uh, the New Paltz two-strike marijuana expulsion policy, which was about the strictest SUNY policy besides SUNY Maritime, which is a part military college. Uh, so we were working to change that. It took about three campaigns in seven years, but I was actually able to write the policy based on uh, a, a few other SUNY schools that the chapter the semester after me was able to pass, uh, given the connections we were able to cultivate and generate together. So that was definitely super beneficial. I mean, both the community and in my role as developing myself as an activist, as an advocate, however someone would like to style myself or I would like to style myself as, but yeah, I, and, and I took that to Rhode Island um, after graduation, working like different temp jobs, and in the meantime, working to fight like a drug-induced homicide bill, for example, in Rhode Island, helping build up now a, a pretty robust drug policy reform network and organizations in Rhode Island. Um, and then I started working for SSDP in June of 2019. I was pretty involved in SSDP stuff as an alumni as well. I got on the board in later 2017, I'm forgetting the actual month of that, but eventually got on that board, served for about a year and a half. And yeah, then I ended up at SSDP again in June of 2019. So I've been here almost a year and a half. Got it. And when it comes to, I guess, for folks who might be listening and want to get involved in, in their own communities in terms of being able to directly affect you know, uh, policy, whether it's at the university level or uh, more um, locally or, or more broadly in the state, you know, what do you see as some good ways of just getting involved in, in that kind of capacity? I think the best way to connect with SSDP or at least discuss how you can get connected in a community is emailing me at robert at ssdp.org. I'm again, ssdp.org. Um, I connect with about, again, 60% of our U.S. chapters, but I'm very easily able to connect you with Luis or Roisin or anyone on our outreach team. So you can email me there and then I can help you connect and get started with SSDP. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll make sure to, to link to that information in the show notes as well. I guess taking a, taking a slightly different focus now and going more broadly onto the policy side, I wanted to, before we dig into the MORE Act specifically and 
how you see both your reaction in terms of it passing the House and your thoughts on what's the likelihood of it actually passing the Senate. Uh, but, you know, taking a step back to the November, early November timeline where there were a number of ballot initiatives related to cannabis. And I was personally surprised to see that all five states, not not all of which were uh, necessarily, in my mind, at least the top contenders to legalize cannabis, uh, that they did all push through. So any initial kind of response to what was taking place on uh, Election Day, specifically in the context of cannabis ballots? Yeah, so I can definitely respond to that. I mean, in terms of the thoughts that we were having going in, um, I I had a few conversations with the South Dakota people or yeah people working on the South Dakota campaign. Um, I actually knew one of the main sort of heads of MPP for that campaign from my Rhode Island days, so we had stayed in contact for a while. Yeah, the only proposal I was really concerned about was the Mississippi marijuana legalization for medical use. Um, I thought South Dakota would be close, and it turned out to be really close, but I was I was going five and five, maybe a little bit too optimistic, but it certainly turned out all right. But I think it's a trend that we're really seeing of marijuana legalization, like truly becoming one of the main bipartisan issues in the United States. Yeah. I mean, a, a fun fact that I saw was South Dakota passed, I believe, by 54 percent to 47 percent. Oh, we can double check. The ballot for okay. South Dakota Amendment A, which was to legalize marijuana, ended up passing just about 54 to 46. That's approximately what Massachusetts legalization passed with in 2016. And if you're able to go from marijuana legalization popularity in Massachusetts to South Dakota in four years, I mean, we th- this issue has been sold to the people. Yeah. The, the people support it. Um, if politicians are out in their communities being against marijuana legalization, I would have to question their... I guess, political acumen or judgment when it comes to this issue, because they're dead wrong on what people think about it. The the tides are clearly turning on on this topic nationally. Yeah, that's right. And so we're really seeing that in terms of the MORE Act legalization or decriminalization, excuse me, being pushed through the House. Um, Obviously, a large major fight in the Senate is going to occur. uh, But I think we have the people power and also inside power as well to make that happen, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute. We can stay on ballot measures for a bit. Yeah, I guess in the process, uh, you know, talking specifically rather about the the ballot initiatives, uh, a specific follow-up is for an organization like SSDP or just for yourself individually as a, you know, as someone who is uh, working in the space and trying to positively affect the policy. What does that work actually look like? Yeah, so it really depends on the, like, what's of measure you're trying to push at the state level it can be certainly a heavier lift than at a local level for a chapter to do by themselves Um, i mean in in terms of 2020 we saw sort of a range of measures from like dc measures for example which are relatively easy to push as a district that is more of like a large city size right to more major states pushing this like i I keep thinking south dakota i think it's actually the smallest one on the list but let's say like arizona for example which for for a chapter to do they'd really have to be enmeshed with some major players on the ground like an aclu chapter for example um other sort of organizations that have pushed ballot measures so it, it really incredibly varies depending on the amount of people you're trying to mobilize um and it's usually taking place 
a, at least a year before there's actually any news about it. I mean, I mean, the actual conversation around ballot measures is probably taking place, at least the preliminary conversations three years earlier, and then the actual just building up the framework. I mean, we're already building up framework stuff for 2022, at least I'm, I'm doing a bit of that for DC stuff, which is a little bit <laughs> in, in secret right now. So we might talk about that on a podcast later. Okay, we'll have to revisit that one when you're when you're more comfortable with it. But I, I know in terms of just my own kind of uh, learnings about what the initiatives have looked like, you know, the general uh, process of California over recent decades, you know, what happened in Washington and Colorado a couple of years back. And uh, I know Scott Cecil on his podcast prohibited, I'm forgetting who he had on off the top of my head, but he had a great episode that kind of went into a very state-specific battle on that that I'll make sure to link to in the notes here. But I know it was very shocking to me just how long of a tail it could take uh, to actually be able to affect that. And, you know, all of that, even the, the process of actually formally starting that fight, so to say, there's already background work that's been, you know, happening for that possibly for years, if not decades. So it's just uh, amazing to, to realize just how many people need to get involved to make some kind of policy change in this area happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're doing something in 2022 or are planning to do something in the near future, you have to build up your contacts now and build up like being involved with other people's work and organizations and have them actually trust you and not just telling certain communities what to do. It's really about building a lot of partnerships and then the trust and the, and the victories come from there. Now, switching a little bit to the MORE Act, uh, do you mind giving an overview, broadly speaking, you know, why is the MORE Act moving through uh, the House an important thing in the first place? Yeah, um, so a, a little bit about the MORE Act. I mean, the main piece of this is removing marijuana from the Federal Controlled Substances Act and allowing states to decriminalize, legalize, medicalize as they will, for example. This is a major blow to the war on drugs, specifically because marijuana arrests make up a majority of drug arrests in the United States. And although people are not necessarily staying in jail for or prisons for a long time based on a simple marijuana possession arrest, it is getting people involved in the system and starts what is what we've seen in certain things like the school to prison pipeline, for example, like a churning in and out of people from communities that are marginalized by the police and by our economic system, for example. Cannabis is really a gateway a gateway to inc incarceration based on our current prohibitionary schemes. So passing through the House is a, a major step. There's not been a marijuana decriminalization bill that has passed in the House, I mean, since the Federal Controlled Substances Act, which is 50 years ago. Um, so we are really seeing history really changing in a major way. Obviously, the Senate, again, is going to be a major sticking point, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I mean, th this is just amazing news and is taken so much time from activists, advocates, etc. This has been a fight that we've been seeing for a long time. I mean, since SSTP started in 98. So yeah. uh, I'm looking forward to taking this momentum and moving it forward. Absolutely. And just to, to add a quick sidebar, um, in case any listeners sort of don't happen to know the, the some of the stats around uh, cannabis-related arrests, I'm currently reading a book called Weed the People by Bruce Barcott. And just to, to give a, a quick little excerpt from there, 
In the 1990s, marijuana laws didn't change. Their enforcement did. The CompStat system adopted by the New York City Police Department rewarded cops for low-level pop busts. Between 1990 and 2002, arrests for possession increased 2,461% in New York City. Eight out of every ten New Yorkers arrested for pot were people of color. And I'll sort of end the quote there, but pretty much saying that there was no indication of usage going up, of crime related to usage going up, of anything going up, besides a four-digit increase in the arrests related to cannabis. So the rescheduling and uh, no longer viewing uh, cannabis as sort of a Schedule One, which is the most dangerous substance with no medical benefit whatsoever, getting it out of that category, especially given the very clear evidence that's been seen in recent years of uh, cannabis or CBD or THC-related products being very helpful for certain ailments, uh, and just the fact that you know people should not moralistically be put away for absolutely no reason. Um, it, it is absolutely a, a very big deal that these things are moving through. And I guess how likely do you think that this will go through the Senate on the first go-around? Um, so I think 2021 is going to be a lot of just figuring out what sort of things we are going to push on as a movement, as a primary focus. I think in terms of the Senate, I mean, first, it's really going to depend on what happens in January with the Georgia special election. Uh, so we'll be able to maybe be able to judge that a bit more in a month. But I still think it's going to be a heavy lift depending on... I mean, even if it's a split Senate, I think you're going to be seeing a lot of issues around marijuana legalization minus certain key aspects of the MORE Act, like providing grants to impacted communities or let's say communities impacted and marginalized by the war on drugs, for example, um, and certain equitable licensing programs, et cetera. Um, so I think we're going to see major obstacles in terms of getting like actual marijuana justice passed not just marijuana decriminalization and allowing states to do what they will, but saying the war, I mean, the war on drugs, but at this time, the war on cannabis was wrong and it was wrong for 50 years. And what are we going to do about that to build up generations of people that we've thrown in prison? So 2021 is going to be a framing year, I think, for SSDP. I, we are going to be pushing for the MORE Act to be brought into the Senate. I think there are going to be different bills that are brought up for consideration. I know this States Act, um, which is a little more, kind of a major, more watered down version of the MORE Act will probably be brought up again, back from the dead. Uh, so we'll have to be contending with, you know, what people are willing to drop and what people are willing to accept. And right now, again, really depends on the Senate, really depends on what House Democrats want to focus on. So 2021 is going to be an important year because I think 2022 is going to be the year that things really start moving. So if we are falling off the game in 2021 and not pushing our policy priorities, like we only have one real shot to get marijuana decriminalization in a just way. So 2021 is going to be, I mean, maybe even almost more of an important year than 2020 was. And so before we dig into some of the specific policy priorities, I think it might just be helpful to take a uh, to take a quick pause and just make sure to define some terms for the listeners. And you've alluded to already differences between decriminalization, legalization, etc. But just to to make sure it's very clear for uh, anyone tuning into this, what is the difference between decriminalizing cannabis and legalizing it? Yes. Yeah, so in this case, decriminalizing marijuana means taking it off of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. But in general, decriminalization means 
that people are not going to receive criminal penalties, I mean, generally for low-level marijuana possession. Um, legalization would be setting up a scheme in which, or a system in which marijuana businesses could form and operate in a legal capacity. So if, I mean, in, including decriminalizing marijuana, for example, it would say businesses can do X, Y, Z, and there are certain limitations on advertising. I mean, it would just be going, it would be like business regulations. Uh, so the major difference is, yeah, just basically just allowing marijuana businesses and then figuring out what sort of regulations they should have. Absolutely. And just to stress, the, the idea of legalizing, uh, at least I have yet to talk to anyone in this uh, who's thinking about this or working in this space who says, you know, it should just be legal with absolutely no regulation in place. I, I think everyone who's thinking about uh, cannabis or, or other uh, drugs and the conversation of legalization imagines some kind of framework of regulation around it, you know, what you're alluding to in terms of what's okay in terms of advertising, what is the structure of which organizations can sell it, are there limits on quantity, are there are sort of requirements on reporting or testing, uh, or all other kinds of elements. Uh, it's not just the idea of, you know, as soon as it's legalized, every store on the corner will have unlimited amounts of cannabis for people to buy. That's right. And, and that's good business. Like actual <laughs> regulated business is obviously necessary, especially when it comes to a product that can grow mold, for example. I mean, I don't need to go into the like <laughs> biology of cannabis. Just, yeah. Yeah. And similarly, for anyone who likes to push back on uh, policy and thinks there should be less regulation, uh, you know, this is a very common thing for just things we put in our bodies uh, or that uh, interact with our safety, ranging from, you know, seatbelts being a form of harm reduction. That was something came up with uh, uh, with Julia Hilbert when we were chatting recently, or the fact that, you know, sugar is regulated and other things because they can be uh, th there can be problematic aspects if they're not regulated. So uh, the thought of regulating cannabis and some capacity is not exactly unique to cannabis either, especially when thinking of uh, alcohol and tobacco, both of which lead to uh, many, many more deaths on an annual basis than, than this substance. That's right. And it, people can get into the weeds in terms of what regulations make sense or regulations around, I guess, gummies or whatnot. I, I don't really get into the weeds on that too much. But yeah, definitely, like we need at least some regulation that makes sense, for sure. So for for the uh, for the remainder of our conversation, I'd like to first dig into some of what you see as the the policy priorities that should be in place. Uh, you know your personal view on that for 2021, and then just take a step back in the context of what are the necessary components for a well thought out cannabis legislation specifically. And just to make sure I'm explaining why I'm asking that slightly leading question, I currently uh, full-time reside in Pittsburgh in uh, Western Pennsylvania. Our governor in PA has pushed the idea of cannabis legalization a few times, but I believe at least twice this year, specifically for the purpose of helping to cover some COVID-related expenses. Um, and we don't have to get into the whether that link is necessarily a, a good or bad one, but just more of whenever I hear things trying to get rushed through, I get worried that they won't be as well thought out as they need to be. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. You know, first, in terms of the, the policy priorities for the next year, in your mind, you know, what, what do you think are the battles that need to be fought in the next 12 or so months to ensure that, you know, at some point, the more act will pass or some iteration of it will pass the Senate as well? 
Yeah, so I think there are going to have to be some things that are taken out or things that we do not desire in the marijuana decriminalization bill that comes out of whatever the MORE Act versus the State Act fight leads to. I mean, if they choose a different acronym or whatever fancy sounding name. Um, I think the number one priority we should have, and maybe this is a few priorities, but basically providing communities that were targeted and marginalized under the guise of the war on drugs. They, they need to be provided grants and access to cannabis business. Um, I, but I think mainly we're talking about just actual restorative justice in the form of giving services and, and just cash um, to groups that are serving, again, these communities that were targeted under the guise of the war on drugs. I know that's going to be hard to keep in there. I know we're going to have to make some sacrifices in a marijuana decriminalization bill that comes out of <laughs> at best a split Senate. Um, but that needs to be something that is kept in this bill and fought for as hard as we can. Because if it's not, then we're, we're very likely not going to get it otherwise. Um, so that's my main focus. And just to dig into that one a little more, you know, the idea, and, and I'm assuming there's also the element of making sure that records might be expunged for people or uh, especially if anyone is still currently serving time for a purely cannabis related offense, especially a possession related offense, you know, for those folks to kind of be uh, granted pardon uh, and have their records clean. Is that also part of the, the restorative component? Um, yeah, it does look like the Moore Act has expungement back to 1971 uh, when the Controlled Substances Act was passed for things that would be decriminalized under the, the Moore Act or whatever comes out of the Senate, for example, like low-level marijuana possession, mainly. And to build on that, as you were also saying, it's not just the idea of, hey, if you are serving time or have served time for pure possession of this substance, which is no longer going to be deemed to be illegal one. Uh, in addition to that, it's actually more of a intentional financial component about making sure that, well, given the fact that you are you individually as someone who is directly affected uh, and arrested for cannabis possession in the past, or uh, if your community was highly targeted in the war on drugs and, and uh, the, the attempts at policing it, uh, which did not lead any to any reduction in cannabis usage in any way. But if those efforts targeted certain individuals or communities for those groups to have access to funding to now be able to build out some of the new legal cannabis businesses once that regulatory framework is set in that state. Is that correct? Yeah, but also in that just providing, I, I think there should be tax money from these cannabis businesses that is given to, like not just setting up a cannabis business, but for, for providing like public health services as well. Uh, so just expanding on that a little bit. Absolutely. And then uh, providing the public health and presumably there might be more access to public health services, uh, as well as potentially all kinds of other beneficial social programs to just help uh, spruce up communities that have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. That's right. And so you listed that this kind of restorative component as, uh, if I'm correct in understanding, sort of the, the top build priority, so to say. For the next year or so, do you see any other important um, uh, priorities for 2021 specifically? Um, yeah, is that in terms of cannabis or in terms yes, of other cannabis uh, okay. specifically? Yeah. Um, yeah, so cannabis, um, and this is more going towards the state level. I do want to see some more movement around adult use legalization in some of these states, especially in the Northeast, that have been holding off because of 
federal marijuana prohibition. I've done marijuana legalization lobbying in New York and Rhode Island. Um, obviously, DC got to it before I got here. Um, and one of the main things I heard in that state or those states, and whether whether it's an excuse or not, it was still used in most of the conversations I had was because marijuana is federally illegal, we are not, even if people are supportive of it, and you can question their support, but then then we shouldn't legalize it in our state yet because we don't want federal interference. We don't want to go against federal law, which I can get to a point, but when people in your communities that you're supposed to be helping are being arrested for marijuana and you think it should be legal and the federal government has allowed it in other states, it's not a really good argument. But I do think with the MORE Act passing the House, there can be a little more pressure around, I mean, especially Democratic members saying that this is the Democratic Party line now. And I mean, it has been in the electorate for the last 10 years, but politicians have been especially slow to this. So I'm hoping that there can be more pressure around different states. Again, like I'm a little biased, but New York and Rhode Island, for example. Um, I know there's bills coming out in North Carolina, for example. I'm, I'm really hoping to see this spread throughout the Northeast and maybe more mid-Atlantic as well. And if you had to put on your future prediction hat for a moment, and uh, of course I will not be holding you to this prediction, but uh, you know, if you had to uh, kind of guess or be hopeful for when you think there might be a true federal change in in the positive direction, hopefully we're not going to regress at some point. Uh, but uh, you know, when do you see that happening? Do you think it's going to be in the next one to few years, possibly under this next administration, or that it's just such a wild card that it might be really tough to predict? I think it's going to be tough to predict. I am going to pin my hopes on 2022. Um, I wish 2021 was my year of being hopeful for this. But I, I, I mean, I, again, I think we're going to have to be fighting to keep our policy priorities in there. So honestly, I think 2022 on my end is a little more positive than 2021, because I think that might be a bit rushed. And if we tried to put something through in 2021, it might go against some of our policy priorities and ideals around marijuana decriminalization and marijuana justice. But I think 2022 is a solid choice. Um, I think at that point, we'll have even more states looking to legalize. Again, like I, it's mind boggling to me how, much, how many states can be voting for marijuana legalization, how it can be overwhelmingly supported by Democrats and moderate independents slash moderates. And also, um, majority of Republicans at this point. I mean, I just, it's so hard for me to comprehend. I mean, I guess I didn't live through the 80s drug wars where a lot of these politicians, I guess, political ideas and objectives were formed, but it's just going to be winning as we usually do on the state level and then looking to see a better legislative path moving forward in the years to come because it's been quite difficult in places like Vermont, for example, uh, to really try to get that passed. It took quite a while. so. Hoping to see how we can learn from that and grow from that, but I'm still I'm still feeling positive, even though the timeline keeps extending more than I expected. And before we switch tracks to more, you know, what are some of the components of well thought out cannabis uh, legislation on a state level? Uh, is there anything else in terms of policy priorities for the next year or so that you want to mention? Um, yeah. So right now we're actually planning out our policy priorities and federal policy agenda for the 117th Congress. Um, that is looking to be set up a, a bit before the actual next congressional session in January, like early January 2021. 
Uh, we recently had a policy summit where we brought together some members, alumni, a few supporters as well uh, to list a series of priorities for the organization. Uh, so right now, I, I don't have a solid list because I want those to be generated in a way that's really bringing it through like what our members and alumni desire, but sort of looking at 20,000 uh, 20, feet, we're looking at, I mean, well, obviously Canvas decriminalization and legalization, that's been a focus for a while. Uh, looking at states doing drug decriminalization, for example, like all drug decriminalization, like Oregon and Measure 110, uh, which we were following, I mean, since January of this year, <laughs> it's been quite the journey on that. So we're looking at movement there in Washington and California, uh, maybe DC, we'll see. <laughs> If we can get our way on said very, very much with cautious hope. <laughs> Maybe that, that was, yeah, that might've been the thing I was a bit secretive about earlier, but I'm fine with, <laughs> with, with hinting at that a little bit. Putting um, that energy out into the universe. Yeah. I like putting that energy out. Maybe it'll come back to me if I put it out there. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So access to harm reduction, um, removing barriers from medication assisted treatment, for example, um, and, and a variety of other things in terms of psychedelic medicine. So yeah, again, we're still planning out our actual priorities for the next con uh, congressional session, but those are a few of our things that we're focusing on the federal level and certainly on the state level as well. And just to be clear, when you say the the harm reduction and the access to medication-assisted treatment, are those in the context of opioids and other drugs or are also somehow related? Are there also some components that somehow relate to cannabis? Um, oh, yeah. So that would be mainly for, I, I guess, like non-cannabis substances like opioids like methamphetamine you know like a various sort of uppers and amphetamines etc uh, so that would be like medication assisted treatment like thing like we're talking like methadone suboxone buprenorphine here for example like providing more avenues for people to be able to get medications that are proven to be generally more effective or at least partner well with other sort of abstinence based sort of groups, et cetera. Yeah, and for any listeners interested in hearing more about some of those uh, policies, you can listen to some of the earlier episodes that I did with uh, Yurka Taylor uh, or John Calkins, more focused on opioids and specifically what are the uh, the policy approaches that have very clearly had positive effects elsewhere, uh, either parts of the U.S. or elsewhere in the world, uh, and what we can kind of learn from some of those. But yeah, thank you for, for overviewing what you're thinking about in terms of uh, policy priorities for the next year. Yeah, of course. Switching to kind of the the last set of uh, the last set of questions and, and conversation for today and thinking about, you know, wh what does need to be part of well thought out cannabis legislation in in the state level? And of course, you know, if the Moore Act somehow does pass the Senate uh, uh, early in, in 2021, this will be a sort of different discussion, you know, of uh, how do you then have to consolidate state and federal level? And what happens if there's a, you know, if you're allowed to federally or, or to grow and transport cannabis across state lines, there will be sort of some complications or not complications, but just a different approach and thought needed. But before we're in that environment, uh, what do you see as some of the key things that states need to be including? And I know we've alluded to some of that with a restorative component. And if there are any states that you think have particularly done aspects well, definitely please feel free to to mention those. Yeah, so there 
been some good organizations pushing for restorative justice pieces, and I won't go into that too much in terms of state legalization, just because we've discussed that pretty in depth, or at least have had you know kind of a, a long, longer conversation on that. Um, so I won't go into that too much. I know there's been a good fight in Massachusetts around restorative justice. Um, in terms of looking at states that have done it super well, I honestly really can't find any, which is quite disappointing. But I do know of folks like fighting the good fight in states like Oregon, for example, to try to get more restorative justice and actual investment in communities marginalized by the war on drugs. So still looking for those, but I know groups like Minority Cannabis Business Association are pushing for those for those quite well. I'm actually used their language in Rhode Island to try to work on some legalization at the state level. Uh, so yeah, so we don't have to go into that too much again, though. Um, in terms of other things that I've seen on the state level, and it's been a, been a couple of years since I advocated for state legalization, so I'm going back into the archive a bit. I think legislators and then folks who are regulating the potential or active marijuana businesses like really focus on parts of legalization that are i like mainly fake concerns or concerns that should not have much, as much attention on them as they should I mean, i'm thinking of things like like thc gummies for example um i know now they have packaging that's child proof um but there's there's so much scaremongering around different parts of legalization, like, oh, if adults have these THC gummies, it's going to make their kids use marijuana. And I mean, looking at the packaging that they've used to make the, the I, I get these a bit more dull in certain states, like I think they found a way around that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just looking at these arguments and understanding what's in good faith or not, um, and, and seeing like what actually needs to be thought of in terms of regulation, um, things like figuring out how to get people involved in the cannabis business that wouldn't be before, um, trying to figure out how to give adequate grants to folks to be able to set up businesses themselves. Um, and in terms of the taxes, I know there are, I mean, issues in Illinois, for example, where just flower products are very, like ridiculously expensive and i think it's driving a lot of people to just use the same market avenues they were using before um i think that might be something that solves itself out when there's an actual like amount of product that has been around for a while just like flour and concentrate etc that has been built out of an actual legal industry uh, so i'm not sure how much of that is growing pains and how much of that is just just too like it's too much too much tax <laughs> for example but I think giving actual, like you need an adequate amount of licenses and a lot of states, I mean, especially in early legalization have not done that. So if you're not going to give out licenses to whoever wants it, you're gonna to have to probably double or triple the amount that states have in the past because it has not been adequate in most of the states that marijuana legalization has passed in for sure. And just to clarify, when you're saying licenses there, you mean the state kind of deciding that, you know, there were in our state, there can be X number of businesses that will produce or sell cannabis related products and companies have to apply to them to get one of those licenses before they can actually start operating that business. Oh, yeah. So thanks for the clarification. I meant that more for like growers of cannabis, for example, or I guess manufacturers of like concentrates, for example. Um, I think business limits in terms of actual front-facing stores have been pretty just 
ineffective <laughs> and not very good at figuring out consumer demand for cannabis. And they're usually quite limited in terms of how many are made versus how many people want or how many adults want to try one of these weed gummies, for example. Uh, because I think, again, the people deciding how many marijuana businesses can exist are mostly prohibitionary lawmakers who don't think people want to try legal cannabis products, even though they overwhelmingly voted for it. Um, I, I was thinking more of just in terms of growing licenses, it's been pretty woefully underdeveloped in different states. And we've seen states with like shortages in the first week. I believe that may, may have been Illinois as well. Um, I can take a look at that later. Just might be picking on Illinois, but yeah, I, I've, I'm quite in, involved and connected with chapters there and got to see their legalization sort of unfold. And then people not buying weed products because their their marijuana was ridiculously expensive. And I know one thing that came up at some point earlier in the conversation that I wanted to follow up on, what's the what's your view in terms of what testing should look like? Do you think that thought out cannabis legislation should in, should just address the topic of are we making sure that whatever is being manufactured and sold to consumers is actually what it's being advertised as? Do you yeah, do oh, you absolutely. think at a high level? Yeah. A yeah, absolutely. Um in terms of I mean, especially I'm I'm thinking more of like mold tests, et cetera. But I mean, I, I think if we can get to a place where we can adequately determine like THC and CBD levels as well. I think that would be, I mean, especially, I mean, that's 100% important for medical marijuana products, but I think if we're going to be looking at legal adult use businesses, we need to have adequate testing of these products. Um, I don't know what the ramifications should be for businesses that are like too low on X or too high on Y. Um, I think that sort of increases if there's an actual danger to an off test for example or if a product is contaminated with something or like a pesticide etc um, but i mean we when we 100 need to have these substances tested and make sure that they're safe and make sure that they're being correctly advertised and sold to people yeah, and I know from my own personal view, one of the things that I, I hope to to both have more evidence of and just see more of in the future is as there are more products tested and as testing is made to become more readily available and even the process of testing is, is slightly more standardized and explored a little better, you know, the black market from my understanding over the last, say, 30, 40 years of cannabis usage in the U.S., it, it has kind of incentivized for growers to produce the strongest, most potent possible strain. Uh, and that may not necessarily be what users are looking for. And they might want actually more of a, say, THC CBD balance strain that might not have some of the potential long-term uh, issues that some of the overly highly concentrated THC ones uh, might have. And Overall, the health research around this is still not where it needs to be because cannabis has been Schedule One for since the '70s, pretty much. Yeah, that's something that I've definitely seen as a trend. Um, I mean, even more in conversation with folks who are a little older and discussing, I guess, marijuana in the '70s and '80s versus now. Um, and and as something that I noticed in Colorado when I was able to try a a legal one-to-one -one THC CBD strain, for example. Um, I, I've definitely never been one to particularly like marijuana use itself, although I do love its decriminalization and legalization for sure. Um, but yeah, when I was able to try a product that was actually like more adequately balanced, I, I really 
started to see what you know prohibition was focusing people to do and when you have a product that's illegal you want it basically in the most the form that it's easiest to sell in, which is basically as small as you can get it, which gets a little bit into something called the Iron Law of Prohibition, which really, not to get into that too much, but it, it, it drives products to be sold in smaller and smaller like packages. Or for example, like instead of selling opium, you want to sell heroin, for example, because it's easier to ship, for example. I mean, it's quite easier to ship. And that pushes even more into fentanyl and carfentanil, for example. And so I, I guess in, in terms of uh, just thinking through, again, on a state level, any other components that are important to include there, is there anything else that you want to mention on that side while we're talking about it? Um, I guess nothing too new or relatively additional to the conversation. But you're talking about transport before. I would like to see more states engaging in some sort of agreement or some ability to transport over state lines. Um, I'm not sure how much they're able to do given federal uh, prohibition of cannabis, for example, but I believe states have talked about it in the past. So it seems like there is some potential availability for transport to happen, which could, I mean, especially help newer states or states that are developing newer cannabis legalization measures to have enough product to sell, for example, and also just be in connection with other states to provide them advice on testing, for example, how to set up a market, etc. So looking at that, um, in terms of advertising, you know, honestly, in, in terms of advertising, I guess it depends on state to state. I don't think it makes sense if you have alcohol advertisements legal to not allow cannabis advertisements. Um, I mean, I'm kind of personally of the mind to not have alcohol advertised either, but that's a little more of an personal capacity than an SSDP capacity. So you can feel free to take that quote as you will or not. But yeah, so I mean, I don't think I have really anything else to add. Um, but I mean, even just the decriminalization of marijuana that's inherent within a, a legalization measure is huge to combating the war on drugs in each state. Yeah, and just one other area I'd like to get your opinion on if you're open to it is the idea of more cooperatives. I believe in Spain there's a sort of a cooperative grow model uh, where groups, kind of individuals will come together and they grow just for their own cooperative, not for outside businesses uh, or not for, for general users, uh, more for people who are kind of part of their community co-ops. Do you see any, I guess, do you have any thoughts on co-op structures and uh, is that worth looking into or is that just kind of uh, an equivalent parallel to alternative business models that may or may not come up here? Um, I think the movement towards more marijuana, I guess, co-ops um, is fantastic. I'm definitely all in favor of more uh, worker participation in the actual management and structure of these marijuana businesses. I know a Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council, I believe, um, I believe they're out of Boston, has pushed um, marijuana co-ops a bit more. I am very interested in seeing, I mean, whether it's a marijuana co-op or seeing the increased unionization in marijuana businesses to continue. Um, I think when it comes to these businesses, again, it was sort of built off of a very a, a prohibitionary scheme of arresting people for using substances. And I, I think disproportionately, the people who are being arrested under the guise of the war on drugs are going to be workers at these cannabis businesses 
while the managers or the owners of these businesses probably did not experience the same the same struggles i mean i don't think that's very controversial to say so looking at that i do want to see more worker participation in the development of these these sellers of marijuana whether that is in a co-op form or again currently marijuana current marijuana businesses excuse me to unionize and i mean at this point we've kind of run through the gamut of topics i was hoping to cover is there anything else that you want to make sure you can mention uh in terms of cannabis policy more broadly or outside of the u.s or just anything else that we didn't directly touch on that you want to make sure to to comment on yeah so i'll just touch on the international piece for a bit um i i do know that the u.n just uh rescheduled cannabis um to a lower sort of scheduling on the a commission on narcotic drugs basically level like similar to the controlled substances act list of schedule one through etc um, so that is definitely huge news for our allies outside of the u.s which again ssdp is made up of approximately i mean i think we're actually grown to 33 countries at this point we got a, a lot of movement in the last couple of weeks given our psychedelic pipeline so yeah we are constantly expanding we just set up a daughter office in vienna and we are planning on doing a lot of un work uh, and Commission on Narcotic Drugs work around cannabis rescheduling, around fighting the war on drugs on a global level, because it is a global war on drugs, and we we need to be cognizant. I think especially U.S. people need to be cognizant of what's going on outside of the U.S. and in the U.N. Um, I think because the U.S. has flaunted so much U.N. guidance, we don't take the rest of the world seriously enough, and that's something I really think we should be changing. So. Definitely looking around to see what's going on um, in, in Europe, in West Africa, we have a huge presence as well. And I know Ghana has just had some major drug policy reform change um, in their legislative body as well. So yeah, just keep your eyes out for things that are going on outside of your country. And yeah, keep legalizing marijuana here. Perfect. And I'll make sure to link to SSDP and, and your email uh, in the show notes. But is there anything or is there anywhere in particular you like to be found online? Um, yeah, so we are on all platforms as either SSDP or SSDP Global. Uh, so take a look through those and you'll be able to find us quite easily. Um, for me, you can email me at robert at ssdp.org. And if you're looking to connect with another member of the outreach team if you're not in my regions i'll be able to connect you but if you are in california or maine or michigan come say hi awesome well again thanks so much for for taking the time to chat i really appreciate it yeah definitely appreciate it thanks thanks for taking the time to tune in the history of drugs and society is produced by me eugene leventhal Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at DrugsHistory or over email, DrugsHistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.